Hey everyone, welcome back to the Noon Podcast. In today's episode, I'll be interviewing Noah, a dear friend and colleague with an extensive EMS background. From serving in the Air Force to becoming a medevac pilot, his journey is truly remarkable. We'll explore the challenges that he's conquered and be inspired by his unwavering positivity. Join us as we dive into his incredible stories and learn of the invaluable wisdom gained from his diverse roles and years of experience. Let's get started. All right. Well, welcome, Noah, to the 911 Nonsense Podcast. I appreciate you coming out today. Thank you. Can you go ahead and give me an introduction of yourself? All right. My name is Noah. I am a fixed-wing air ambulance pilot. Uh, used to be a paramedic, was a flight paramedic and an Army flight medic for quite a number of years with the uh, New Mexico Army National Guard. That's really cool. And in talking with you, you have such an extensive career because you worked on the ambulance for a long time. And then you also you also did photography in the military, right? Yeah, my first job as a uh, as a, you know, functional adult was uh, spent a little time in the Air Force as uh, I think the official title was broadcast journalist. But I found my way more into the videography side of that. That's really cool. And did they did they provide you all of the stuff that you needed? Mm hmm. So if you oh, requested yes. like a super fancy camera, would they get it for you? Well, yeah, you had to deal with what you had on hand. But oh, okay. I mean, it, it involved a lot of travel, uh, a lot of cool places, a lot of interesting projects. And it was more public relations oriented than anything else. So um, I contributed to an agency at the, at the time called Air Force News. It was sort of an internal media product. And um, another one of those jobs where I, I did it for a, for a brief period of time, but met so many wonderful people that I've, I've kept in touch with to this day. That's so cool. What a neat experience. Uh, I've gotten a little bit into photography myself recently, and I've, I've just been having a blast. It's amazing what our phones can do these days, right? Like, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what got you into EMS? Well, it was sort of a combination of things. I uh, I kind of hit a, a bit of a limit on the uh, broadcast journalist side in the Air Force. I felt like there was... Like I said, I had a, I had a lot of fun and met some wonderful people. I, you know, I never will take away from that part. But the job satisfaction part for me just was not super high. And um, I happened to have a sister who worked volunteer EMS down in Valencia County, the way way southern end of Valencia County at the time. And so she, we used to talk on the phone, and she'd give me all kinds of stories about the stuff she was doing. And I thought, well, maybe well, let's give that a try. Maybe that'd be an okay fit. And so I did. And it did. It fit for you know quite a few years. Um, the transition to being a pilot was more of a, a the, the accomplishment of a childhood goal more than it was anything else. But EMS and I sort of found each other, so we did that happily for quite a while. That's really cool. Yeah, the EMS stuff, you know, when it fits with you, it fits really well, huh? That's mm-hmm. we've known so many people that are currently EMTs or paramedics and have been EMTs and paramedics for years and years and years that actually still quite enjoy their jobs. Yes. And you're you are married to somebody who works on an ambulance, correct? Mm-hmm. I am. And how does that work with your scheduling? Well, I mean, it, it, we followed a grand army tradition really of getting married right before deployment. And so our first year as a married couple really was spent mostly apart. And then my time when we got back, I was an active guard and reserve guy, which meant I was it was like being on active duty, but I worked for the New Mexico National Guard. So that involved a lot of missions here and there, like the occasional search sure. and rescue and one thing and the next. So, you know, like our time at home was not always in sync, uh, is not unusual to us. And so with the job that I have now, um, you know, doing seven days on or two weeks on at a time, and uh, she's still uh, more of a casual pool style uh, employment. So, you know, hers is, her schedule is pretty hit and miss. 
Um, so we try to make the most of the time that we do have. And uh, I say it's not that uh, it's not that we don't love each other, but you know, you be, <laughs> we get accustomed to the yeah. to the rhythm of how that goes, or even the you know the somewhat you know arrhythmic nature of that of that sort of uh, schedule. Sure. And what do you think of the, because you said you're doing two weeks on now and it's mm-hmm. it's 12 hour days, two weeks in a row. What do you think of that schedule? Uh, it's, you know, it's worth the, uh, the discomfort of the marathon is worth the two weeks off on the other side of it, quite frankly. So it's, uh, it, it can be kind of a long haul, you know, in the home stretch there, but Especially yeah. when they have you going, because you can go up to 14 hours technically. It makes for a long rotation if you're doing 14 hours pretty often. It can. It can. Now, I, you know, in, in all candor, I haven't had to do 14-hour uh, days in quite some time. Good. Um, and I think that's, I imagine there's a combination of things involved there. Some of it's just the number of requests that are available, the number of crews that are on duty at any given time. Um, I like to think our dispatch occasionally is pretty compassionate about, you know, you've, you've done this much, let's bring you on home, you know, sort of a thing. Let's get you a meal break. Let's get us, let's take a second. And so it, uh, it's not, I haven't seen a 14 hour day personally. I may be jinxing myself with, you know, the next rotation coming up, but (laughs) there's a chance. uh, Yeah. Yeah. But I haven't, I haven't really had to deal with those kind of extraordinarily long days and certainly not, you know, multiples in a row. Sure. And you're flying, um, are you flying on days or swings right now? Uh, the next schedule, I'll be, I think it's uh, seven day shifts followed by seven swing shifts. Oof, and it's rough to fly right now with the summer and the, <laughs> the thermal potholes that are out there. Mm-hmm. It just makes it for rough flying. <laughs> um, so do you like it better in the front of the airplane or in the back of the airplane? Oh, gosh. that's Think of that as uh, different flavors of ice cream. Okay. Right? <laughs> and I kind of like ice cream. So the... When I was when I did my civilian flight paramedic stuff, I did that with UNM's flight service, mm-hmm. and um, they got a lot of high acuity patients. I had the real, uh, I mean, the absolute blessing of working with some amazing people over there too. And so, going on some of those calls uh, with the kind of partners that I had over there was just marvelous. It was fun. It was you know high at, t- at times high stress, high workload kind of patients, but. It was a lot of fun, you know, and then we made the transition to the front of the airplane and um, at times high stress, high workload, still a lot of fun. You know, it's just a different kind of fun. And uh, I think what made it fun for me, too, was, you know, transitioning from being a flight paramedic to being a pilot in a medevac organization. And so uh, the medicine side of it, while I don't obviously don't actively participate in that anymore, is still personally interesting. So when folks want to tell me about their patient. We can totally have a conversation, you know, a coherent conversation about their patient. Um, And I, you know, I'm always interested to hear what's, you know, what's happening. And it also helps, I think, at times it can help with, well, what do you anticipate? Do you need me to fly fast or do you need me to fly smooth? You know, I can give you one or the other. Um, Sure. No, that's a great way of putting it. So you, uh, did you let your license lapse? uh, No, my, uh, my flight paramedic, I allowed to lapse. That was a four-year cert that kind of gave out uh, March of this year. My... Uh, national registry and state paramedic licenses are good through 24 and we'll probably research just one more time just as a just in Uh, case just as a well as a fallback yeah you know and just in the event that we find after a period of time you start to miss it you know maybe we can get back into it at some in some capacity would you uh if you did would you go into like a clinic setting or would you get back onto an ambulance do you think that's hard to say uh probably a clinic setting yeah the ambulance is hard it it can be. Yeah, I mean, it's I, wearing. At my age, it does. You know, I, I do start to think in terms. 
I guess one guy says, like, you're starting to get to that age where you say things like, I'm at that age. And so that's kind of where I'm at. You know, there were days uh, toward the end of my National Guard time. You know, I was in my middle 40s at the time and dangling outside of helicopters to pick up hikers and that kind of thing and thinking, what, you know, kind of, what am I doing? You used to, like, jump out of helicopters? Well, not jump, but, you know, they'd uh, pop out on the hoist and my crew chief <laughs> would zip me on down to go pick somebody up. And... That's really cool. Do you feel comfortable sharing any of those stories? Yeah, uh, well, we did. I did a few of them here around the state. Most of them were pretty straightforward you know things like uh, somebody had skied out of bounds and didn't show up when they were expected to so their families had activated 911 usually through state police is how that worked uh, state police would go out and take a look and if they couldn't find them every, everybody would sort of bed down they'd get there was a whole process for getting the guard mobilized for that kind of thing so we were never really on the leading edge of a search and rescue we were always sort of way behind you know everybody else by sure. the time we got out there but most of the time it was something like that in the winter time uh, somebody was overdue down in the gila wilderness which you know is beautiful from the air but man has this thing where it just sort of draws people in and then spits them out later on you know or yeah. they get lost or freak snowstorms all kinds of stuff it gets can get a little rough on folks but yeah we did a few it was and that was most of them was just somebody didn't show up when they were supposed to and but families or, or their fellow hikers knew kind of, well, we were in this kind of an area. Maybe we go look there and we'd go look and lo and behold, there they are, you know, and they were perfectly fine. So uh, when most you get, of the time. when you get dropped down, like were the helicopters landing nearby or was the plan to keep them up in the air and then you would get hoisted back up? Well, all, all situationally dependent, but typically it would be hoist you down, make contact with the patient, usually with a, with a team. And uh, so we'd get a quick report from them. They'd usually have them packaged up pretty good. So it would sort of be like, well, verify everything's good. And then contact the helicopter. And they'd kind of swoop back in, pluck the patient out first. And then I'd follow right, right afterward. And then we'd go wherever we needed to go. You know, either we'd come back here to Albuquerque and um, couldn't use the helipad at UNM. But so we that would, was my uh, next question. If you were able to land on the helipads, mm -mm. no? No. Uh, and mostly, I mean, just, uh, you know, aero aviation nerd stuff the the um the rotor disc on the blackhawk was just too big for that helipad so um typically we landed at johnson field right there off the uh, east side of of unm off the mm -hmm. main buildings there so uh campus police we had a whole there was a whole process for getting that done so campus police to go out there run out there kick everybody off the field and is that something that you guys had to initialize or did they do our, it themselves? Our version of dispatch, our operations specialists had a whole list and they just start at the top when they start calling. They would, uh, that was part of their process was we would let them know, hey, we're going to Johnson Field. And they're like, okay. And they jump on the phone and start their calls. And nine times out of 10, by the time you got there, there was, you know, the campus police had all four corners of this thing blocked off and the rescue and the pumper truck would be sitting there and do you have and, one, um, like, or multiple stories in particular that were probably your favorite when you worked in the National Guard? Oh, I don't know. There was there was quite a few. It was another one of those, you know, you, just kind of like in EMS where uh, you fly together, you do all these things, and you um, becomes a, you become very close knit with your people. Um, it becomes another family, and um, you know, as dysfunctional as any other family, you know, there's people you don't want to sit with next, you know, next to at Thanksgiving and all, but. <laughs> yeah. Nonetheless, they're still your family, right? And they, uh, but in terms of stories or missions, the ones that stand out were, you know, it's just there were quite a few, and all of them for sort of different reasons. Like I'll never forget my very, very first search and rescue, which involved an aircraft crash. 
Oh, and, wow. Uh, yeah. What happened? Well, so it was uh, it was actually the state police helicopter crash in 09. In broad strokes, the uh, um, the state police pilot had picked up an officer to act as sort of an observer. And as I understand the, the order of events, they had flown out to pick up a lost hiker, picked the young lady up. Uh, we're getting ready to fly back. Uh, some events had kind of ensued that were outside of their control. The helicopter ended up crashing on the east face of the Sangre de Cristos. Uh, uh, the pilot and the young lady were both killed in the crash, and the uh, the patrol, the young patrol officer, had survived. Wow! And so my very first real world hoist rescue um, was my crew had found the one surviving individual uh, in the presence of I think it was another mountain rescue person had found him and had bundled him up and you know kept him warm and all so then we showed up and you know I remember very distinctly my crew chief saying something to the effect of well that's a hoist (laughs) and uh, myself going from feeling you know jittery and butterflies in the stomach kind of stuff to just just everything going away and thinking all right it's a hoist rescue and uh, so we rode the hoist down and and how high up are you roughly when you're when you're hoisting down like that? That one wasn't too high that I recall. Now I don't re- <laughs> that being my first, I don't recall a lot of that one with great advantage. In fact, yeah, um, I seem to recall it was less than a hundred feet. Uh, I might have been at a hundred feet or thereabouts because it didn't seem like the ride up to the aircraft was all that long. But we got the young man in the air in the helicopter, did a quick assessment. Didn't seem like he was, you know, critically injured at that point. Like his vitals were pretty stable. So we actually ended up dropping him off at St. Vincent's, feeling like, well, that ER was the closest. You know, they could do some really quick stuff. If he needed to be transferred, then you had critical care assets that could swoop in and move him if sure. they needed to. And I think ultimately, I don't recall that they ever needed to. I think he, they treated him and released him from St. Vincent's. Okay. Ultimately. And helicopter rides are pretty slow, right? Compared to like the King Airs that we fly, like a gallop to Albuquerque is what, like a two hour flight in a helicopter? Uh, a little more than an hour. Can be a, a little, little more, more than, than an hour. hour. Okay. Um, it, it does become, if, you, if you're if you in an agency that in, has helicopters and airplanes, that, that becomes part of the discussion. But the, the trade-off in the, you know, the difference in the actual air travel, sometimes you have to consider offsetting that with the ground time. Uh, at least with a helicopter, you can go helipad to helipad. I can deliver hospital to hospital. In an airplane, there we're going to manipulate that patient three or four times, getting them in and out of airplanes and ambulances and the whole bit. Sure. So sometimes, occasionally, uh, the speed advantage of a fixed-wing aircraft is sort of offset by uh, the the transport, the ground time on either side. So. It just, uh, you know, especially say like in a place like uh, Santa Fe, if you were going to transport a patient, well, like, like we've done, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the ground time <laughs> from the airport out to St. Vincent's and back. It's a 20 minute drive. Can be, you know, can be considerable. Where with a helicopter, they land at the helipad, pop up, and 20 minutes later, they're landing in at whatever hospital they're going to in sure. Albuquerque. Yeah, no, I agree. That's, that is definitely convenience. One of my buddies the other day that just started at a helicopter service here in the northern part of the state said that there's no AC in his unit. So is that a standard? That's a good question. I don't know. Um, when I worked for UNM, the aircraft, the helicopter that they had actually did have AC. Oh, that's um, nice. Seemed to work pretty well for the most part. For the most part. <laughs> <laughs> so I couldn't speak to all of them. I mean, I've uh, I've crewed three different types of helicopters, you know, two military and one civilian, and they... Uh, 
the uh, military ones had no air conditioning whatsoever, and um, the civilian one, as I recall, had a, had a rudimentary air conditioner that worked well enough to take the edge off. That's so. good. <laughs> the AC units, even in the even in the King Airs, you know, the, it's, it's kind of rough because you're in the heat until you're off the ground, mm-hmm. and sometimes that's not even until you're hitting almost ten thousand feet before yeah. that AC unit's kicking in. So it's it's hot. The flight suits are hot. And then if you're having to wear any extra gear, it's really hot. So that can be rough. I couldn't imagine doing that in a helicopter for over an hour. Well, again, I mean, my, with, you know, sort of the things I've done in my previous life, even if the air AC wasn't working on the helicopter, like not to make a great deal out of it, but, you know, there was a time where we flew in temperatures well over 100 degrees, you know, in full gear and Ugh. and plus body armor, plus, you know, your ammo and yeah, with your weapon and that kind of stuff. So... So everything after those experiences was not, you know, was relatively <laughs> simple. Not as bad. <laughs> they were transitioning into a into a good place, yes. it sounds like. <laughs> That's good. So do you have any favorite stories from your ambulance time? Because you served on an ambulance for several years also. I did. Funny enough, not as long as I've been flying. Uh, but what I recall of my ambulance time was I was never a black cloud and I was never a white cloud. I was sort of a moderately gray cloud. And I'd get some really sick patients from time to time, and occasionally ones where uh, it was so textbook, like they really did the, did us this favor of throwing a, a very classic, you know, right-sided or inferior AMI, and we could get them to the hospital, and the telemetry all worked the way it was supposed to, and the door-to-balloon time was fantastic, and the follow-up you know, just made you feel all warm and fuzzy inside. It seems to me, I recall having transported a lot of psychiatric patients in my time at ambulance, uh, but again, not, you know, high-strung, violent patients. Oh, that's good. Mostly the guys that were relatively laid back, maybe a little amped, but not not fighters. Like, they weren't looking to hurt anybody. They were just sort of off their meds and out of control for a minute. But again, you know, I had, I guess, no, no funny stories. Just what I remember is uh, when I was in paramedic school, they had partnered me with uh, Bob Grothy. At the time, which... It's a name uh, I haven't heard in a long time. <laughs> right. So Bob and I worked every other week together for about three days. And the weeks that I was not working with Bob, he got these wild and crazy traumas, like just really bizarre stuff at times. And the times that I did work with him, he'd get kind of weird medical calls. And uh, one that kind of comes to mind was a gentleman who was trying to, what was he trying to do? I forget what his whole point was, but essentially he would steal his brother's crack at least, you know, once a month. His brother's crack. And smoke his brother's crack. Either, I forget if it was an ADHD thing where it helped him focus and he got everything done, you know, for the day. And then he could kind of descend into whatever sort of little mental morass he would go into in between or what the deal was. I just remember when we got to him, uh, the one time that I responded to this guy with Bob, uh, he was in this back bedroom of a hoarder's kind of style mobile home. Um, he was a big guy. Fortunately, he could walk, but he was chalky gray, just looked awful. Uh, and his heart was whacking away in the 200s. Oh. Uh, but he was very upfront about, you know, why his heart was whacking. I mean, he was telling you all about it. But um, I remember Bob uh, getting him into the, getting the guy into the ambulance and he's still cracking jokes. And Bob felt like, well, OK, you know, we're, he's OK enough to crack jokes. Yeah. We're doing we're all right. <laughs> But we ultimately uh, couldn't do anything for the guy in a sense, right? He had no veins that you could see through his arms. His arms were just huge. I think Bob tried the, uh, you know, uh, what they called the God stick at the time, which was, well, normally there's a vein right about there-ish. So he'd kind of poke him and fish around and ultimately never got it. So he he didn't get a chance to cardiovert the guy. But we got him back in the old ER and... um, 
I remember them taking a look at the guy, just a whole bunch of things. You know, it seemed like there was, it was a, a guy in his residency that Bob was talking to, and the guy was kind of ignoring Bob for the most part. <laughs> Bob keeps telling him, well, I, you know, this is what I think is happening. This is what he told us. This is what I think is happening. And then the doc would sort of give Bob the hand and then go his own way. And the doc's way really wasn't working. And finally kind of came around to Bob finally saying it once again, like, I think you're going to have to cardioverd him because this isn't, you know, like you can give him all the meds it's you want. It's not working like this. Yeah. That's not what's going on. And so they finally did it. They loaded the guy up with fentanyl. And, oh, that's um, nice. Yeah. <laughs> that's the part that I remember really very clearly was standing in there with everybody else watching this whole thing go down and um, hearing the capacitor on that life pack wind up and somebody yell, yeah, that's the sound it makes. That's the sound. <laughs> And so it gets to the top of that little pitch and somebody yelled clear. And I watched 12 pairs of hands go into the air like a little rave. And then somebody punched the button. And this guy who weighed uh, at least 350 um, levitated off that bed. All we heard is like this very soft little pop. And he went, he levitated and came crashing back down and yelling and hollering and cussing. (laughs) Oh, his, his heart rate went from somewhere in the high 200s down to about 100-ish. Oh, that's better. With that one shot. And then he sort of went to sleep with all the fentanyl they gave him. So that was the one kind of, that was the one story that I do remember. The other thing I remember from my ambulance days was the, my very first day as a paramedic. Uh, I was in card hot off the presses and uh, walked in. And the, whoever the supervisor was that morning patted me on the shoulder and said, Hey, so what do you think about crewing your own truck today? <laughs> and I said, I, what do I think about that? How do I feel about that? I don't feel great about that. <laughs> like, I thought I was going to double medic with Bob again. You know, I was going to learn all kinds of stuff now that I got, you know, this marvelous scope of practice behind me. And they patted me on the back again and said, you'll do fine. And um, You're good. <laughs> out the door I went. Well, that was the day that, you know, was a, a prime example of your partner can make or break you, Right. So my very first day as a functioning paramedic in charge of my own truck, calling my own shots, right? And master of my own destiny. Um, <laughs> I ended up working with uh, Contessa Chavez. The, I could not have been in better shape that day for a partner. So a little rookie paramedic, sort of lost in the woods in a sense, like trying to look, you know, trying to look like I knew what I was doing, but really kind of uneasy for the better part of the day. That uh, having Contessa as my partner for that first paramedic shift really set the tone. It was uh, she was a marvelous partner. It ended up being a marvelous shift, and in great part due to the fact that um, she knew what she was doing, and I could kind of concentrate on finding my feet uh, as a brand new medic, and I didn't have to worry about what else was going on in the truck. So, did you continue to work with her? Off and on, I worked with, uh, now these days, like I can see faces and I I can't always remember names. But I had a couple of regular partners as a paramedic. And again, for the life of me, I can see the faces, I can't remember the names. But we worked with, I I ended up going PRN at one point and uh, worked with a variety of people sort of off and on. Um, Folks, some folks that are still there and had kind of moved up through the ranks. Other folks that, because our community is so small, bumped into them in other arenas. You know, I've bumped into flight nurses where I work now that I worked with when they were EMTs Mm -hmm. and I was a paramedic. Oh, I think it's so cool when you're traveling all over the state and seeing nurses that you've worked with just in completely different areas. I think that's so cool. And they recognize you and then you're both really happy and it's just (laughs) such an easier, like, transition for patient care. Mm Mm-hmm. It makes it really easy. So what got you to going into critical care? Well, what got me going into critical care was I had, um, 
So I'd always wanted to be a pilot since I was a kid, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to take the long way around the barn here for a second, I think. But (laughs) uh, I wanted to be a pilot when I was a child. Kind of got steered in a number of different directions and didn't really have the the know-how or the imagination to visualize a path to getting to be a pilot. But as uh, as I started to as I started to kind of step out uh, as an adult and was active duty Air Force for a bit as a broadcast journalist, well, that took me uh, that kept me in aviation in a lot of ways. You know, I, I was on board a lot of different airplanes, taking pictures of other airplanes and helicopters, and doing all kinds of neat stuff that way. And and I came out of that, and, and um, through a, a set of a variety of circumstances, ended up in. Uh, with the Black Hawk unit up in Santa Fe and the New Mexico Guard. And I was with them for, gosh, 13 years, uh, the last 13 years of my military service, which comprised the bulk of that that time I spent in uniform was with those guys. But uh, so as I started to transition out, that was the next question was, do I go into a flight service or do I go back on the ambulance? And to me, the answer was, well, we go back to, we continue on with a flight service. If we can find one that'll take me, with what you had no critical care background because army flight medicine is really trauma driven it's battlefield mm-hmm. evacuation at its core it's no different than a fire department rescue or albuquerque ambulance unit it just big green and noisy and throws a lot of wind and so yeah. but the scope of practice is basically that of a paramedic so as i retired and uh started applying to different flight services got uh, got invited to an interview and uh, tried to be very upfront about, well, I've got 15, 16, oh, 20 plus years of aviation background, uh, 13 of those as a functioning, like a mission related operational crew member. So uh, my medical skills are pretty good. My trauma skills are, you know, pretty fine. And, but I told them at the time, I have no critical care background. So it really, I don't know that it was necessarily a fascination with critical care so much as it was, I get to still fly. Sure. Was sort of the thought um, going, you know, kind of floating around behind my eyeballs at the time. But I tried to be very upfront about what my background and my experience was. The other thing, the other part of it, though, was understanding that, yes, I want to, I still want to fly. This will give me an opportunity to stay in airplanes and helicopters. That will be great. But I also, uh, these are people's lives we're dealing with. Um, in a far different environment than I've dealt with before. And so what do, you, what do I know about critical care? Well, not a lot. So what does that mean? Well, you better learn. Because when the flight suits walk through the door, I think there's times that people feel like, oh, things are going to be okay, or things are going to get better. That's sort of an expectation, I think. And I feel like they've got a right to that. And, and I've got no right to betray that, <clears throat> that yeah. expectation. And so... The idea that, uh, well, I don't know a lot, so you better get to studying, you know, because for two reasons. One, the patient and their families have a right to the best kind of care that I can provide them. So I need to be proficient with this stuff because it's more than trauma or, you know, your you know, sort of your straight medical calls. These things can be so complex at times that making a mistake in one area can just have this cascade effect. Right. It trickles all the way down. Or even if it doesn't, even if it doesn't have an acute problem with the patient right this instant, the things that I do, the mistakes that I make, can set them up for a, uh, a poor prognosis after I get them where they're going. And so that really drove me into the books. Plus, meeting the uh, the folks at UNM and realizing, you know, the not to take away from any other flight service, but realizing the high caliber of people that they had over there, the ICU backgrounds, um, just the, I mean, an incredibly diverse uh, and a highly intelligent group of people, highly professional. And I 
wanted to be able to hold my head up in that crowd. I did not want to feel like they had to continually make uh, allowances for my um, my deficiencies. Sure. It wasn't really an interest in critical care, but I tried to develop myself as much as possible with their help. I mean, so I didn't do it So it sounds like they own, gave but... you the opportunity. Oh, then yes, to... they did. That's good. And that's something that, you know, I, I know people at my work now, I think occasionally, you know, get sick of hearing about them. <laughs> um, but I go, I'll go on and on about that program um, in part because they were my first post-military job. And I walked in, I feel, with some pretty good tools on one side of, of the job, but really not a lot of tools on the other. And they were very welcoming. They were very warm and hospitable. And they, I think I feel like, like I never take myself for the sharpest knife in the drawer on a, any given occasion as it is, but the way they welcomed me in and the way they brought me up uh, as a critical care paramedic, it just really, it made an impression on me. To this day, uh, I bear those guys a great deal of affection and, and a great deal of respect. Oh, I know. We all hear about it. Yes. And I'm just, I, like I say, I can't go on enough about how grateful I am for what they what they gave me. Yeah, no, that's great. I have to say kind of the same thing for the flight company that we're at now. You know, I, I was coming in with no critical care experience and they were willing to take me on and kind of put me up, up to that. So when you took your FPC, was it a, a computer-based test? Mm-hmm. How did you feel about I that? I did. I felt okay. I try not to walk out of places thinking, oh, I got that one. You know, I sort of walk out <laughs> thinking, well, we'll see how that goes. You know, I think I did okay. I didn't feel like anything really super stumped me. But throughout my years, uh, I've always been a solid B student, no matter how much I studied. So well, that's good. I felt like at the bare minimum, I scored at least an 80 out of that, you know, so we'll see. And uh, fortunately, unlike the National Registry at one time where you could take the computer-based test and then you had to wait two or three days to find out, mm-hmm. I took my FPC, walked out, jumped on my phone, opened my email, and ding, there was a little thing that said, congratulations. And so I immediately sort of melted down a little bit uh, in the truck <laughs> and treated myself to a cup of coffee and went back to the house, oh, you know, good. super happy about <laughs> where I was at. So That test is no joke. Yeah, I studied a lot for that, more than most other courses that I'd ever studied through. Did you take a critical care class? Uh, I didn't take a, an official class. Um, through a roundabout sort of way, uh, the Army had gone to requiring flight paramedics to attend paramedic school and then a critical care course. But that came at the tail end of my time. So I was so close to retirement, it was no value added to them to send me to either one of those two courses. But my younger flight medics that did go would come back with all these resources and materials and, well, do you want this? Well, heck yeah, I want it. You know, yeah. I bring it on. So, uh, so I had quite a bit of material from them already. Is there any material that you would recommend? Uh, Anthony Lopez's uh, Crash Course Videos was one. And Orchid Lee Lopez, her book, uh, Back, Back to, to Basics. Basics. Those two paired together. My, my technique personally was to watch some of Anthony's videos. And then I'd go over to Orchid Lee's book and follow that up with the chapter. And then she'd have some sort of mock quizzes in the book. And so I'd take the mock quiz. And so I'd chase those two. I chased those two like that for a year, um, in addition to working at, at for UNM's program and um, kind of going through the specific stuff that I jot down as notes for myself. Learn more mm-hmm. about the you know learn more about ventilatory uh, stuff, you know the ventilator and ventilatory theory and all this stuff. And and so between basically like those three things, I felt like I was pretty well prepared. That's good. What would you say, or can you describe a complex critical care patient? The ones that seemed complex to me, anyway, were the ones that were sedated, intubated, 
on the vent um, with multiple drips for multiple reasons. Because for a number of reasons, besides the fact that you had that many gizmos to manage at any one time, it and was move. that, yeah. well, yeah, secure them, move them, you know, transfer them from theirs to yours. Because a, it doesn't make sense that any of our stuff would be compatible, well, right? Of course not. So the other part was just the med math. You know, some of it was knowing that uh, or seeing where the patient was at. A lot of times I would defer to my partners. Um, you know, most of my RN partners were all had these extensive ICU backgrounds. And so um, I had one in particular. He was I don't know how he did it. But he could look at those at those pumps and sort of sort out in his head what each one of them was all about and sort of confirm the math in his head like you'd see his lips kind of moving a little bit and then he would come back with yeah that's good yeah, i wish i could do that <laughs> yeah yeah and, you know i'd sort of be standing there with a piece of paper with half the formula written out and be like all right you know like, <laughs> so usually uh, when you're talking about like the infusions the the iv pumps and such it would be you'd have somebody they were on a one medication for their blood pressure they were on another medication to keep their heart at a particular rate they were on another medication like an antibiotic for whatever they had going on so everything had to be on its you know, like were these compatible in the same line? Did you have to have them on different lines? Were we going to, you know, create a little IV manifold and be able to turn things on and off? And, you know, and how do we do this? And how do you keep them all straight? It was that, uh, it was that partner that got me into uh, carrying a whole bunch of colored tape <laughs> all yeah, wrapped around smart. a sharp shuttle. Mm -hmm. And, man, I was at least a whiz on that. You know, we'd have it marked at the top and we'd have it marked at the patient and you know, other complications would be things like sometimes the because of the differences in um, like proprietary uh, software or the way a, a ventilator, for example, worked, the settings that you saw on the hospital ventilator was not necessarily the settings that were going to work on your ventilator. And so you had to be able to sort of recognize that and respond to it and uh, either make the adjustments or switch them back or, you know, do something. That was That to me was the complex patients. And then you add in managing all the equipment, the patient themselves, because they can't help you. Yeah, making sure you don't lose the tube, yes. making sure you don't accidentally pull any lines on the mm -hmm. way when you're moving from, you know, their bed to your bed. And then again, when you're moving from your bed to the receiving facility's mm -hmm. bed. Yeah. And then double checking your tube while you're flying because <laughs> you're going to lose air pressure, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, any number of things. Uh, I think they're fun. You know, we don't get a, we don't get the opportunity to do them very often. Well, it's kind of hit or miss. Like some, some months it'll just be back-to-back -back critical care, and then some months you're just transporting psychs every mm -hmm. single day. <laughs> so we had talked a little bit about your, your EMS experience. So I'm just wondering, is there anything that you may have come across that was just so wacky or so out of place you couldn't believe that it happened? Not, not that I can recall quite like that. Like I say, my, I've been fortunate in my career. Like I never had any of the any really super bizarre calls or really, really really awful, you know, horrible experiences. Mine were all kind of, you know, middle of the road somewhere. But the one that comes to mind is kind of a, one of those, yeah, you know, sort of almost like, a, yeah, this, I guess this happened kind of a thing was we, we got, we got called out in the guard uh, for a search and rescue down in Ruidoso, uh, down in the Ski Apache area on February 14th on Valentine's Day. Oh, lovely. And uh, it was a guy and his girlfriend that had skied out of bounds and had not shown up on February 13th. They had skied out of bounds, um, didn't show up at the car or the hotel the way they were supposed to. So, you know, all the all the things ensued and we ended up flying down there the next morning. And it didn't take us very long. Normally you fly around for at least an hour or two and then go refuel, come back into the search area and you're like, ah, well, uh, that might be them. 
Instead, we got down there, got into the search area, and I remember my crew chief saying, well, I got two people walking over here. I don't know. Oh, well, yeah, they're now they're sitting down. That must be them. And so I got hoisted down that time, you know, I think about 200 feet in between the trees and all. Boom. Oh, wow. And we had their names. So we, as soon as the hoist went up and the helicopter moved off a little bit, we could talk to them. And, you know, well, are you, is this you guys? And they both said yes. And she looked really stressed out and he looked super embarrassed. And it sounded like it was one of those she was following him and they ended up, you know, somewhere else entirely. But it was sort of that whole notion of, yep, that's your uh, that's your romantic Valentine's Day is uh, you got to have your first helicopter ride together. You got your first hoist <laughs> together and your first helicopter ride courtesy of the New Mexico Army National yeah, Guard. Yeah, that's all free, right? <laughs> Probably not, uh, you know, not a box of chocolates, but, you know. <laughs> well, that's fun. Yeah. When you get hoisted down, have you ever gotten, like, bumped into anything? Or have you ever oh, fallen? Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. And it's no, it's generally, it's nobody's fault. It's just the conditions at the time. Um Again, the two that come to mind uh, one night, middle of the night, um, same gentleman that hoisted me down for my very first search and rescue. We kind of grew up in the same general area of New Mexico. Uh, his name's Curtis. And so every time Curtis and I, we had a weird mojo. Every time we got paired up for a search and rescue, the conditions were just not optimal for the thing to be a super smooth event. But we always had the best two pilots that I could think of sitting up front. So we were always in pretty good shape. But we ended up in the Sandias one night. Uh, it was about 10 or 11 o'clock. Albuquerque Mountain Rescue was already on scene with the patient. It was a very small target that Curtis was trying to drop me onto in the dark with the wind. Oh, goodness. And the helicopter kind of backed up into a into a corner of the rocks and all. And um, the two pilots really, you know, the pilot on the control is really trying to hold a very rock steady hover. And it's just not, I mean, you're going to move. The aircraft is going to move. And so sure enough, like we missed the spot down through some trees, bounced off a couple of rocks, got dragged up through a pine tree. Jeez. <laughs> You know, all kinds of stuff. At one point, I uh, got to swinging back and forth. Again, nobody's fault. It's just kind of how it happened. But, what I, you know, I remember swinging back and forth and watching 12 little headlamps of the mountain rescue guys swinging back and forth like a bunch of penguins watching you. me go past. Um, and then this one hand lashing out in the darkness and grabbing my boot uh, turned out to be Jason Williams, who I think was in charge of mountain rescue at the time. And he kind of reeled me on in. And then we were fine. <laughs> But yeah, that was one like came out of that with brain, you know, little twigs and stuff sticking out of the helmet and kind of beat <laughs> up a little bit. Sounds like a little adventure. Yeah. So that's the kind of stuff that would happen. I mean, I, I think there was only one time again, another rescue in the Sandias, uh, where the wind was so bad in the afternoon that rather than swinging back and forth, he started doing this oscillation where he's kind of swinging in this big arc. And um, that wouldn't have been so bad, except that we felt the cable go across the side of the aircraft. A couple of times. Oh, that's no good. Um, well, that's that's caused cables to break yeah. in the past. And again, it's not that the crew chief wasn't doing anything. He was desperately trying to get a hold of that, uh, both feet on the cable, pushing as hard as he could, and he just could not get it to stop. But I remember being on the hoist and feeling the shutter come down that cable the first time and thinking, oh, please get me into that helicopter. And like, just stop. <laughs> just stop messing around. Just get me in there. And then feeling the second shutter and thinking... It's coming. Here we go. Like, uh, probably those rocks over there. I hope it doesn't hurt real bad. How many feet up were you at at that um, time? We were well over, you know, somewhere between 75 and 100 feet up Oof. at the time. And so that was my moment of really feeling very distinctly like, eh, you know, death is coming for me today. Yeah. <laughs> like, and like, really, for real, thought, yeah, the, the chance that this, you know, that we're going to have an accident today and I'm going to end up, you know, careening off into the, into the boulders there is very real. 
Um, and if so, I took the next day off, you know, oh, and then good. we were fine. Um, not the kind of thing that caused me nightmares or anything, but it was, you know, we had a, kind of a moment. Yeah. It had to take a second back and mm-hmm. collect. Have you had any other, maybe not near death moments, but moments where you thought, why am I fucking doing this? <laughs> well, we had a few moments. I mean, I, some of my other experiences, I was a ground medic for a, another National Guard unit when we went to Iraq. And I tell guys, like, we weren't in a shootout, you know, every single day, but... There were times that stuff would happen, you know, I driving around patrolling at night and all of a sudden this kind of sounds like somebody slammed a fridge door shut and um, hear this whoomp and then this sort of, um, I don't know, like a sparkler sort of sound and watch this thing look like a sparkler actually pass between our truck and the truck in front of us. And we all three of us in the truck, zoop, watch that thing go past. Oof. And, and uh, the I remember the guy in the, the, the truck commander looking at my buddy who was the driver and saying something like, was that an RPG? <laughs> and they're like, that's pretty much what that was. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Somebody just took a shot at us. <laughs> and then they opened up on us with a machine gun and that kind of thing. And so guys started responding and all. But sure. it was it was kind of one of those moments, again, not of utter terror or anything, but sort of one of those like, holy cow, they really meant it. They tried to hurt us that time. So <laughs> They were really trying. Yeah. You guys just got lucky. It shot right between you. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine a couple of degrees? That's really all well. The yeah, the guys right? in front of us or us. You know, yeah. somebody could have gotten hurt. But and that was most of it. Like I say, I don't know if uh, you know like buddies of mine that are kind of in the same mindset that uh, in aviation and outside of aviation that you have these experiences and occasionally look at each other like, "Wow, boy, did you see that? <laughs> we almost got it that time, didn't we?" We could laugh about it now. But. And, uh, <laughs> Well, even at the time, thinking, well, maybe we're not smart. Maybe we're supposed to be stressed out about stuff like that, you know. And Jeez. you think, well, yeah, but, you know, I guess the way guys think, you know, like, it could have been bad. Yeah, but it wasn't, you know. Like yeah. it's, that thing skipped down a got down an alleyway. It's down there somewhere now. I mean, like, not anything we have to worry about. Oh. So the, the RPGs are supposed to explode on impact, right? Mm-hmm. So it didn't explode when it zoomed past you? It, we did not. I don't remember seeing a flash or hearing a bang when it went, like I said, when it went down the alleyway. So, I mean, it's an, occasionally they would shoot off some duds or, I, I mean, I don't know RPGs, but, you know, I know that they've got safety mechanisms like other weapons. And if you don't sort of disable or deactivate those safety devices, then the thing's not going to work the way it's supposed to. So. Sure. Uh, I know you had mentioned that you had had some psych patients, not necessarily super bad, but were there any where you ever like kind of questioned your treatment on them as well where maybe you were a little worried you know sometimes like when when I worked on the ambulance we would have to pull over and it wasn't always necessarily an opportune time so if we're pulling over because this person's getting rowdy male or female sometimes you're on the freeway and you have to be really careful and you have to get control of that situation or that person's going to run out into the road and get struck by a vehicle right you know never had that experience um Say so most of the time, I, I, the patients and I had at least enough of a rapport uh, that you could talk them down fairly easily. Or if you just sort of let them be, um, in a lot of cases, they were they'd sort of do whatever they were doing. That you know, it wasn't a it wasn't harmful to them or me or the or the truck. And you sort of let them go and do their thing, and they were just fine all the way to the hospital. So I never really had an episode where somebody had gotten so out of control that we needed to stop the vehicle right then and there and get a hold of them much less having to do that on on the interstate yeah oh that's good i had (laughs) i had one just recently actually while flying you know because we do transport some psychs and we picked him up and we were (laughs) we were driving him to the airport and 
he had a urinal with him. And I thought, okay, well, he was either using it as a urinal or he was using it as a cup. Like, maybe he just kept asking for water in there. Like, here, no, use right. this as a cup. Like, we're sick of getting you cups of water or whatever because they don't have access to, to the water. And uh, we're putzing along over to the airport, which is maybe a 15-minute drive. And he proceeds to use the urinal, which is fine. That answered my question. And I'm not shitting you, Noah. Like... <laughs> He didn't even let it cool down. He put it up to his lips and he drank the entire urinal. And it was like probably half full. Oh, oh, recycling. In the time from the hospital to the airport, he did that three times. And I'm just sitting there like, do I stop him? (laughs) Do I take that urinal away? Do I risk him peeing all over the ambulance? What do you do? You know? (laughs) <laughs> well, that you know, we actually ended up having to drive him back because the weather conditions had changed. Oh, and yeah. so we didn't end up flying down to the facility that he needed to go to. He, I told my partner, you're going to you're going to sit in the back this time and I'm going to drive <laughs> back to the hospital because that's a little too much for me. Yes. Yeah. No, that's again, not something I ever had to deal with. But I can I can appreciate the conundrum, though. yeah yeah that's that's rough i mean it's crazy because you hear of medical providers just getting assaulted you know left and right right, and it's sometimes you get lucky and sometimes you don't uh so do you have any any stories where you just smile or you kind of laugh about it like that was really cool i got to do that ah gosh that no no specific stories that come to mind i just i remember almost like eras and groups of people and things that, you know, in general, things that we would do. So when you, when eras. you're remembering, are you remembering the people that you worked with? Mm-hmm. So you're, you're enjoying the time that you had at the company and the people that you got to work with oh, probably yes. more so than the, than the actual calls. Mm-hmm. No, that's good. Yeah. And you always, there's always calls that you're going to remember, whether it was, you know, because something goofy happened or, you know, or, or it was kind of, it was a more somber event. But what, what I remember uh, out of all my out of all those things that I've done over the years, whether you're talking about the broadcast journalism stuff or through EMS and flight and all that, what really has stayed in my memory is uh, the people that I worked with and the good times, sort of, again, not specific events necessarily, but overall, uh, just how much uh, I enjoyed it or appreciated the time that I had spent with them in these different arenas or these different sure. places. Because like you said, we are in a, in a smaller group of people. So there's a good chance that anywhere you move, you're going to run into somebody you've already worked with, mm-hmm. which is nice. I feel like, and you may disagree with me, but I feel like the camaraderie has decreased significantly um, amongst almost any position these days. I think it, it, it went from a, this is a team, let's finish this as a team, to a, I'm an individual and I'm either going to choose to like it or I'm not. Couldn't speak to that on the on the uh, street side, um, since I haven't been involved in 911 medicine in an extraordinarily long time. Um, I think, uh, again, it's it's the blessing of having been in aviation for so many years, that uh, and having been raised, so to speak, as a uh, an army helicopter crew member. That the idea of live as a crew, die as a crew, really was was a sacrosanct concept. So the the esprit de corps uh, within that unit, uh, because you flew with a little bit of everybody, was pretty high. Uh, because you were out doing some pretty cool stuff mm-hmm. uh, in some pretty cool machinery, 
you know, over periods of time, or you're off to, you know, having adventures, you know, so to speak that, you know, the whole, uh, the idea of a family that suffers together, stays together. You know, mm-hmm. the, the guys I was with in Iraq, um, as a group, they were, that was a relatively brand new unit in the New Mexico national guard. And, uh, so a lot of the guys in that unit were, were plank owners, as they say, uh, with that outfit. And that was it that was put together. And a year later it was deployed to Iraq. And so uh, I was very fortunate to be part of that deployment. You know, looking back on it, you know, there was a certainly times in the process of going to or being in that environment where you think, God, what did I, what was I thinking? You know, uh, did I re- do I really want to do this? You know, like how rewarding is this really? I mean, I'm in a place where the heat is just hurting my face. But then as time goes on, you, you kind of, I don't know. It's it's little things. It's uh, walking to the chow hall and not being able to see a guy because it's you know it's getting on toward evening, but you know who that is because of the way they're walking, and you know that that's you know that's Jesse. Yeah. And that's your buddy. And so uh, it's little things like that 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 I remember. Uh, you know, sort of unpack that box from time to time, and that's the things that make me smile. Is when you think back on those things and those groups of people, and think. Best worst times of our lives uh, were spent as a group uh, in those places. So having been in in positions where you've been shot at, you know, and you have done these high risk jobs, would you say that you've developed any type of PTSD? I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, but talking to you, it doesn't <laughs> seem like it. <laughs> it uh, I mean, for all of its faults, I think the Army has uh, the two deployments that I did do overseas when we came back, I felt like they did a pretty good job of really describing to guys, okay, so look out for these markers. And so I took that pretty seriously. And I tried to be honest with myself about that. You know, like, was I having recurring nightmares? Did I avoid situations because it reminded me of certain things? You know, were there things that I thought about obsessively? And I always kind of came back with, well, no, not really. I think there were things initially that I didn't have a great deal of control over that didn't really fall into the realm of PTSD. And it would be something as simple as, um, when I came back from Iraq, I was still an EMT basic. And so I got partnered uh, with someone and we were driving past a construction site or something and some guy, you know, lit off with a jackhammer. Well, it for a second, uh, just a very brief second, it sounded for all the world like a 50 caliber machine gun going off. And now I didn't like swerve the truck and lose myself in that moment, but I did, I did jump. Um, and I jumped, I guess, enough that my partner sort of jumped too and looked at me like, <laughs> you all right? Totally fine. Yep. <laughs> yep. Totally got it. I mean, it was just a it was just a flash, and then sort of this other part of your brain that's like that's a jackhammer dingus, you know. And we just kept driving. And same thing later on that day, passing by a different site, and some guy you know pulled the trigger on another jackhammer, and it sounded like a you know a particular make and model of machine gun. You know, like jumped again, and partner's like, "Come on, dude! Like, seriously, are you all right?" And you're like, "Yes, I'm fine." I'm telling you, like, it just took me by surprise. That's all. But it never really fell into the realm of of PTSD. So I've been pretty fortunate. I feel like I've been very fortunate in that. Again, my experiences, as interesting and adventurous as some of them have been, have not met have not met the intensity that other people have had to deal with. I mean, it sounds like I've never been shot at. You know, it sounds from the outside looking in like yours was intense and maybe you were able to disassociate maybe a little bit better than some people. Like I can't now, if I go to a gas station, 
I am constantly looking over my shoulder. I like literally I am looking everywhere because I got out at a gas station and some homeless guy came up on me and punched me in the face for no other reason. In a very crowded, very busy gas station. They got it on the camera. The guys in the car next to me like came out and started helping and that guy still didn't get arrested. So now every time I go to the gas station, I'm like picking the holes where I know that the cameras are on because if something else happens, then I have that. So it's it's interesting that you're telling me that you, you don't think that it's that bad. But from my perspective on your stories, it sounds intense. Well, and I yeah, maybe it's a difference in definition. So when somebody asks me if I have PTSD, I think of it in terms of, of the consistent nightmares or the avoiding certain situations because uh, because it brings back certain memories that I just can't, I don't want to deal with, you know, thinking obsessively about specific scenarios and that kind of thing. And, and none of that is part of my experience. Now, I don't know if it's, you know, I, I don't know if it's city living or, you know, or it's partly those experiences or just, you know, the world that we live in these days is what you're describing in terms of that level of vigilance is part of, you know, if I'm out in public, you know, if the missus and I go out to a concert, you know, or to a movie theater or something like that, yes, there is a moment of saying, well, if I had to, how would we get out of here if something went sideways on us? And I don't know that I would chalk that up to PTSD so much as, you know, you think, what are my chances of being involved in being in the theater when somebody walks in and just starts banging away at folks? Like, well, probably just as good as my odds have been of winning the lottery here all these years, right? But it happens. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of, well, what would I do if it did happen rather than kind of walking in with, well, statistically speaking, it's probably not (laughs) going to be today. And then finding myself utterly surprised when it turns out today is, you know, like this, it's just the stars align and here we are. Yeah, there was a shooting at the Century Rio a couple days ago. And we actually had gone to the movies the day before. No. Uh, Not that theater. It was a different theater across town, but still it makes you makes you question that we'd actually gone to see the batman movie Mm. the day that that batman shooting happened and some lady walked in with a huge duffel bag (laughs) why did the staff let her walk in with a duffel bag so and i love i'm a huge batman fan i could not pay attention to the movie because the entire time i was focusing on watching this lady thinking if I needed to get up and jump her if she started reaching into her bag. Right. So, yes, I do. Well, <laughs> I a, you do know, it's an unfortunate that. feature of the world that we live in these days. And yeah. it's, um, like I say, I, for me personally, I don't know that I would chalk it up to PTSD as so much as the environment and kind of things that have happened and the unpredictability of the world that uh, that has developed, especially. It seems like it's gotten worse over the years. And so, as a result, just walking down the street... Um, there is a there is a part of my brain that that does you know you, you do sort of look for you, I don't know you, you keep an eye on people not to profile people exactly but just as you're walking along you know well what am, what do I do if something happens over here what do I do if something happens over there mm-hmm. it's not again I don't think it's obsessive in a sense um, I think I think of it more when I've got you know family members and loved ones with me or people that I feel I'm you know responsible for their well-being at some level crew members and such mm-hmm. that um, I'm a little more, I feel like I'm a little more switched on in those moments than, than when I'm on my own. But Sure. No, that makes sense. I think you and I think fairly similarly in, in situations like that. You know, I feel like there's a lot of people that do it now and I, I try myself not to, 
to go into any type of crowded situations where I am going to feel uncomfortable and I can't even enjoy it because it's the only thing I'm thinking about. And it's usually when I do have, you know, my wife with me or family members. So anyways, now that you have your dream job, what's your goal? Ooh, that's an excellent question. Um, I just go out on a limb and say that I, I was, my goal was, had never really been to go to the airlines. I know that's a lot of people's goal. I think it's a fine goal. Um, it just was not my personal goal. Just as much as I felt fortunate to work for UNM's program the way I did, you know, that they welcomed me in not knowing a lot about critical care. I feel like this company I work for now was extremely generous and welcomed me in when I was maybe not as skilled and knowledgeable a pilot as I've become in the almost two years that I've worked there. And so I'm very grateful to them for that. But it was also a natural move. I felt like this, you know, being in medevac was a familiar territory for me. It was just a different role in that same world. And so uh, if I had a goal um, in particular, it would be to kind of remain within the emergency services world as a pilot. Um, I really like EMS. I find a great deal of personal satisfaction out of doing that job, both in the sort of the social aspect of the crew environment, feeling like I'm doing good for somebody. I mean, regardless of whether you would call that patient subacute or, you know, really, really sick. <laughs> sure. Uh, I feel like, well, you know, you asked you, somebody decided that their best option for their betterment was to be, you know, at point B. So I will get them down to point B as comfortably as possible. So if I could stay within the realm of uh, uh, medical, uh, fire or law enforcement as a pilot, that would, that would be just fine. And you're, you're saying fire, so you'd be one of the pilots that goes and drops the, the fluid or the uh, Either chemicals. way. Um, you know, whether working for a company like the Forest Service or another that does, uh, that coordinates uh, those air assets, or if an opportunity came up to, to fly those assets and, and actively uh, drop water or retardant on a fire or something like that, that would, I think that would be agreeable yeah. you know, to my nature overall, yeah. Do they normally fly double pilots when they're doing stuff like that, or is it a single pilot? I honestly don't know. Uh, I think for some airplanes, it's, it's dual pilot, and it's it's that re it's that way for uh, I, I'm sure there's rules and regulations that govern a lot of that stuff. But some of those planes, like uh, here in Albuquerque, we've got the ten tanker mm -hmm. guys that fly the big DC the big three engine DC tens um, and do fire suppression with those things. That's that's a, a dual pilot airplane. I mean, I, it's uh, I think that's a federal law, <laughs> so not going to get away from that. And so you got other guys that fly seven thirty sevens that have been repurposed for the same thing, also dual pilot. So. I think uh, for the most part, any of the big airplanes that you see, uh, C-130s that have the, the modular system that drops slurry, um, any of the big tankers like that, they're going to be dual pilot. That makes sense. And then you got a lot of smaller airplanes, look like the old crop dusters actually, that, mm -hmm. that do uh, that drop uh, small, you know, do small water drops and such. And those are obviously those would be a single pilot airplane. I wonder if you and you might know. Do you have to have a certain amount of hours to do that kind of? flight yeah everything in aviation is is hours it revolves around your hours and and some of your past experience and so um the industry is 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 sort of in a poor state at the moment and so there's opportunities to learn this stuff that that haven't existed before um, because before as guys used to joke you know older pilots would tell you that there was a time you know you'd kick over a rock and there's three pilots all scrounging for a job and like it's just not like that anymore mm -mm. and so it still revolves around how many hours you've you've flown uh, because they you need to they want you to have a certain amount of aviation experience behind you 
And uh, that way they're just teaching you how to handle a different kind of airplane or a different kind of a mission or something. They're not having, you're not having to become accustomed to a, you know, something right really from the ground up, so to speak. So how many hours do you have currently? Uh, I've got uh, about, uh, about 1,400. Oh, that's good. You're almost at 1,500, right? Are you typed? I am not. No, that's coming up though, I'm sure. Uh, It's possible. Um, So that's another thing is, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of companies out there that will offer you a type rating or um, I'm a commercially licensed pilot. There's one more license after that, uh, your air transport pilot license. And uh, so there's companies that will help you achieve both your type rates and your ATP. Uh, It's generally... The company that that does that is generally investing in in you as a pilot Mm -hmm. uh, because they're spending tens of thousands of dollars uh, on that whole process. And so there's an expectation that you're going to uh, remain with them Mm -hmm. and sort of work some of that off, so to speak, right? So it it sort of does become a matter of, well, where where do you think you're going? Do you need the type rates where you're going next? In some cases, like the Forest Service, for example, they fly King Airs. Um, They fly King Air 200s. So you don't need a type rate to fly that airplane. Um, you do need specific training to do the mission mm-hmm. that they do, but um, you don't need a type rating or your ATP. What what do they fly for? Well, they do both the the you know the sort of the uh, overall re, uh, overall coordination of all the air assets working a particular fire, um, but they also take that King Air down pretty low, and they'll lead uh, fire bombers into oh uh, into their drop. Oh, that's basically. cool. Yeah. So they, they drop the, the fire jumpers then? Well, they can kick smoke jumpers out. Uh, it sort of, I guess it, it depends on what area you're working. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's a region that covers, for the Forest Service, covers New Mexico and Arizona. Um, they mostly do the overall coordination, and then they also will get in front of the tanker and show the tanker, you know, they've got a way to show the tanker, okay, drop your, drop your slurry here, you know, your oh. retardant. That's cool. And then they they get out of the way, and the the you know the big DC ten or somebody else comes lumbering in and and you know throws the red retardant all over the sure. place. <laughs> That's cool. So in all your time flying, have you seen anything weird or like any UAPs? No, nothing. No, we've seen some really cool stuff. I mean, just kind of like pretty. Thing. I mean, like flying at night in this state, once you get away from the light pollution and stuff, is just absolutely beautiful. Um, there's times, as much as we don't like flying, you know, like we try not to fly through thunderstorms and that kind of thing. There's times when you're dodging around them that that's actually, there's a certain beauty to it all. I think there's times that unless unless you see it, you know, describing it doesn't always do it justice. But uh, one morning going out to Gallup, kind of passing right along the tops of the clouds, the sun was at just the right angle. And what we had was this perfect rainbow this perfect circle of a rainbow with the shadow of the the king air that we were flying right in the middle of it and i think my co-pilot took a couple of pictures of it at the time you're like it doesn't translate doesn't do it justice yeah but it's stuff like that you know that um really those kind of scenes um that are just really fantastic yeah i I got i was telling you earlier i got to see the the starlink satellites Mm -hmm. uh last night flying outside of Santa Fe and back into Albuquerque. That was really neat. Kind of just that string of lights. And it was really dim, so I couldn't get any pictures or videos or anything, but it was a neat experience. But I think, and I've been flying for for about four years now, I think I've seen one weird object and we were flying towards, I want to say Amarillo. So it's real dark out that way anyways, when you're flying out towards Texas um, from New Mexico. And it was these two bright orange lights 
and they were flying towards us. And I can look on the screen and see if there's a plane coming. You know, mm-hmm. like I, I'm not super aviation smart, but I kind of have picked up some things. And the two pilots were talking about something. They were trying to get something figured out. And I was like, hey, is there a plane coming? And they're like, no, we don't see any planes. And this bright, the two bright orange lights coming right at us turned around and zipped away really fast. And I was like, did that just happen? Like, did I just make that up? <laughs> I was like, hey, guys, what kind of planes have orange lights? No planes have orange lights. No helicopter. And we were up pretty high. We were probably like 25, uh, maybe between 20 and 25,000. And yeah, I was the only one that saw it. But it was enough <laughs> to, for me to be like, that was really weird. It was probably aliens. Could be, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have you heard? I'm sure you guys talk about it a lot, right? Not a lot, but is it something that comes up in conversation in the pilot world? I think if guys see something that seems kind of weird, they'll mention it. And then everybody, like pilots, everybody's got an opinion, uh, you know, whatever sure. it is, whatever topic it is that you're on, uh, pilots will weigh in if, if they feel qualified for it. And so guys will start, you know, pitching back and forth what they think that might have been and, you know, whether or not the guy actually saw a UFO or not. Yeah. So do you know of anything that has orange lights on it? Um, about the only thing that would come to mind over there in that area would have been a um, would have been military aircraft, and the orange lights uh, potentially the afterburners. Oh, that makes sense. See, nobody said that. It could have been. It was really high. Um, in part because you're on your way to Amarillo. There's a lot of range space out there, mm-hmm. and um, it doesn't necessarily mean like they ATC will vector you away from that airspace enough that you really shouldn't see anything actively taking place in that restricted area necessarily. But um, I think it's always possible, especially at night, if guys have that opportunity and they're, you know, they're sort of in a protected block of air, um, if they wouldn't necessarily not be goofing around a little bit. Sure. <laughs> no, that makes sense. So. <laughs> Way to disprove my theory. No. <laughs> It was exciting. Now I'm going to have to tell my wife. She's going to be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> she's very, she's very much a believer in the in the UAPs and and you know with all the news and stuff that's going on now, it's it's actually really neat to see as things are evolving down that route. So, any plans for retirement anytime soon? I know you've already kind of retired once, but yeah, retired once. Uh, I say the becoming a pilot was the achievement of a childhood goal that took a long detour. And so I think I'm gonna try and make the most of the productive years I have to fly. I enjoy it tremendously. It's uh, it's still, I not only enjoy it, but I find a great deal of, I say, personal satisfaction in that in that role. And so I think we're gonna try and stick with it um, for as long as, uh, as long as it's feasible to do so. And then we'll figure something out after that. <laughs> well, that's good. And so you talk about how it was a long kind of goal around. Would you do it differently if you got the opportunity to? I, I probably would. Um, knowing what I know now, I think I would have tackled it uh, much differently and tried to become a pilot a lot earlier. But having said that, had I done that, you know, it's sort of one of those, you know, all things, you know, everything happens the way it's supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, if I look back now at the kind of person that I was as a, uh, in my late teens, early twenties, even my early time in the air force and such, uh, I don't know that I had the temperament, um, or the mindset to, to accomplish that goal. And so the places that I was, you know, the people that had to endure, <laughs> sort of endure my immaturities at those <laughs> and, and such at those ages, um, as I came up, uh, I think uh, it all happened the way it did for a reason. 
And so uh, I don't regret any of the detours that we took, you know, to get where we're at now. But being able to hit a point where I saw, I felt like I saw a very clear, a very clear path uh, to making this happen where that had not been the case before. I mean, I had, I had talked to guys even in my 20s, you know, Air Force pilots that said, I'd really like to do the job you do. How do you, how do you get there? And the best they could say was, go get your college degree. You know, like, well, well, okay, you know, but then what? And I just, you know, I, again, at the time, the mindset being such that it didn't occur to me to say like, well, okay, let's go get a college degree and then take the next step. It was sort of a, well, I don't see how that's supposed, I mean, I know that, you know, that'll help in a particular way, but I don't see how that's going to get me any closer to flying than I am now. And so, you know, you fast forward through all those years into the into 2017, 2018, when a buddy up in Santa Fe, one of my crew chiefs had mentioned, well, I'm working on my commercial fixed wing license and this is how I'm doing it. And you're like, hold on a second there, Slick. Like, roll that back a little bit. You're doing what, where, and how? And so he explained it and um, kind of made contact with the same people that he was working with. And suddenly it just sort of opened up. Oh my goodness, like, here's this shot. And it's another thing, you know, another piece of the UNM story that uh, all their guys fly single pilot, uh, rotor and fixed wing. And so when I was working on my fixed wing stuff, a couple of the guys over there, the lead pilot at the time on the fixed wing side and a couple other folks, uh, took it upon themselves uh, to become mentors as I went through this whole piloting process. That's awesome. It was amazing. It was tremendously helpful. And again, another reason why I hold that, that whole company in, in such you know, high regard, it was such affection is he didn't have to do that. No. You know, nobody asked him to. Um, I think he saw an intent and maybe he saw a, a potential and he stepped in and did that. And the same thing on the rotor side. There were the lead pilot on the rotor side and, several, and some of the other guys on that side as I was working through some helicopter license stuff that took it upon themselves to mentor and coach and advise. And so, you know, would I have had that wouldn't have had that, actually. Just to answer that right off the bat. <laughs> Wouldn't have had that had I, you know, if I could go back now and say, well, shoot, by my late teens, I'd be running from where I grew up south of Belen down up to Belen to try to beat the door down to find somebody to teach me how to fly. Sure. You know, I wouldn't have met the people that I did and they wouldn't have had... They wouldn't have had the effect on my life that I've that they had. So does it blow your mind that we have pilots currently that work for us that are younger than 21? Somewhat. I mean, I, you know, we fly with, in fact, I think my co-pilot this next week is the same age as my stepson. And so <laughs> they, um, yeah, there's a part of me that just sort of, well, I, I admire the drive. It's, yeah, it's sort of, there's a part of me that's sort of like, A, it makes me feel a little older. And B, it can be kind of amazing. Like, so you started this process right about the time you started driving. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, and yet they bring, you know, their own valuable and unique perspective to this business. You know, like the some you can you can imagine that people would scoff kind of and say, well, they don't have a lot of life experience. And, you know, how, how does that affect their ability to be a pilot? Well, you know, I make that determination for yourself. My experience with a lot of these folks so far has been, well, they tackle it with, uh, you know, sort of a love. They bring a level of um, confidence and fearlessness to this. That older guys like myself, uh, like I bring a, a level of conservative flying uh, as a pilot, and sometimes so conservative that maybe it's not entirely helpful. 
Like maybe it's just sure. a little too much, right? <laughs> and so I, I would disagree with. That. Well, I don't think there's ever any such thing as too conservative when you're flying. No, well, possibly, but yeah, you know, that's that's what I think. You know, the younger folks, uh, the folks that are doing the co-pilot thing now, that or even the captain thing now, that aren't quite, you know, just scraping into their middle twenties. I think that's excellent. You know, you again, you saw that path. You you took you know, took the steps that you needed to take to achieve this particular goal. And maybe this will be the one thing you do in your life. You know, I think it could be argued that maybe I was a little bit, you know, like I flitted from one thing to the next and, mm-hmm. you know, made no uh, made no reasonable progress in any particular field. And then finally landed my little, you know, achieved my little dream job fantasy here, you know, but. I think you progressed nicely. You know, you always see the kids that get into med school and it comes to residency and they're like, I have to do what? <laughs> I have to touch that person? I am not good at bedside manner, you know, so now they've just wasted how many years of education and money just to get to that point. And I think that even if it takes us a little bit longer to get where we're going, we're always where we're supposed to be. And I think for you that that worked out very well. And I think I think you've got plenty of years in this opportunity and hopefully can progress to wherever you plan to be ultimately. Well, thank you. Last question, if you could give yourself any advice at a younger age, what would you tell yourself? I think the uh, advice I would have given myself if I could go back um, and talk to that 18, 19-year-old version of me would be uh, have more confidence in yourself and step out. If there is something that you want to do, find a way and, uh, and just take that first step. You know, you may think you may not be able to see the step after that first step, but take the first step and you'd be surprised at how once you land at that first marker, how you've got just enough light to get to the next one and then just enough light to keep, you know, the next and the next. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Noah. I appreciate it. It was a great conversation (laughs) today. As always, I love talking with you when we're sitting at the table. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Before we wrap up, we have a few important announcements to share with you. Firstly, we're excited to announce the launch of our brand new 911 Nonsense Facebook group page. It's a community where everyone can go to connect, share ideas, discuss topics from the show, and get all of the most recent updates about the podcast. We'd love to have you join us and be part of the conversation. Next, we want to ask you to rate and review our podcast on your preferred platform. Your feedback means the world to us and helps us reach a wider audience. By rating and reviewing the show, you'll be supporting us in a big way and helping others discover 911 Nonsense. If you enjoy what we do and would like to support the podcast even further, we have a few options available. You can visit samspursuit.com to find the links to our 911 Nonsense merch page and our recently released Noon Gear page. Every contribution, no matter the size, goes a long way in helping us continue to better the podcast. We know that not everyone is comfortable being on the podcast, but we still want to hear your stories and experiences. If you have a compelling story and would like to share it to be read by me in a future episode, please reach out to us via email at 911nonsense at gmail.com or through our website's contact section. If you choose to be anonymous, we'll make sure to respect your privacy while sharing your story in a way that resonates with our audience. Thank you again for tuning in. We truly appreciate your support and look forward to bringing you more engaging content in the future. See you next week.